We're going to look at the faithfulness of God this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 21 through 23. We're going to see that God has indeed met David's need in his great time over and over and over again. And I hope that as we sung and what we see and hear in the text this morning, that it will be a great encouragement to you. Before we begin, let's pray. God, you are the strength of your people. You are the saving refuge of your anointed. And so this morning we come to you as our rock, as our refuge, and we thank you for being stronger. We thank you for being wiser. We thank you for being more gracious and more merciful, for your patience and your love, your kindness and gentleness, for the wealth that you possess, for the beauty of your creation. We thank you, Lord, that you are our strength, a very present help in a time of trouble. And we pray this morning, Lord, very simply and very pointedly that you would save your people and bless your heritage. We pray that you would be our shepherd, that you would carry us forever. We confess, Lord, that we have great need. We come this morning, some of us are riding high, others of us are struggling spiritually. Some of us are struggling physically, and some of us are struggling financially, or with relationships in our marriages, or with our our peers at school. We need you. That's our confession this morning, that we need you to be what you say you are, a rock and a refuge, our strength, because we can't do this much longer without you. And so we simply ask, Lord, that as we've sung great truth about you, as even we've dedicated these parents and children to you We pray that you would build your church through your word, Lord. We're hungry and we need to hear from you. And we pray, Lord, that specifically within South Canyon Baptist Church, that you would put within this congregation a real heart and desire to create and sustain deep friendships that revolve around the word of God and the work of God. It's clear not only in parents saying, we need your help, church, to help us raise our children, but each and every one of us need the help of other Christians in our own discipleship. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us a heart that is one of hospitality, one of discipleship, one of evangelism, one of relationships. And Lord, we pray this not only for ourselves, but for the churches around this city and around this country and world that also look to you today, that you would speak to your people through your word, bringing healing, bringing comfort, bringing correction. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see you in such a way that our faith would be renewed, that our trust in you would abound. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're there in 1 Samuel chapter 21, I want to ask you this morning, what have you been trusting in lately? Uh, We 
did some walking yesterday morning in the early snow, and we found that you couldn't trust your footing. It's slippery under that snow. There was a little skim layer of ice. Things that we tend to rely on disappoint us, don't they? Our bodies fail as we get older, we get weaker, and we exhaust ourselves more quickly. Our eyesight fails, our hearing, and on and on we could go. But this morning, what have you been trusting in lately? And how has that been going? I want to plead with you from the text that what we ought to put our trust in is in God alone because He alone is faithful. Now, this is not new stuff, and so if you've been around the church for a while, I doubt that you're going to hear anything very new and epiphany like today. But it is a reminder for us because we are prone to forget, and we are prone to let life just totally put blinders on us. The urgency of parenting, the struggles of finances, the weariness of winter, and on and on we could go. We are, by our very nature, forgetful. And so, whether this is a reminder or whether this is something new to you, I pray and I want to plead with you this morning that your trust ought to be in God alone because He alone is faithful. And we're going to see that from the text in three series of thoughts. In chapter 21 to the beginning of chapter 25, we see that God often provides for His people through ordinary means. This is an argument for why you should trust God. Because he will use some really common things to sustain his people. Things that so easily get overlooked. And yet, they are means of his grace. As we look at chapter 22 and verses 6 through the end, we see a bittersweet reminder also that all of God's words will come to pass. And that is another reason for trusting in him. He keeps his promises. Promises of blessing and promises of cursing if we're disobedient. And then as we look at chapter 23, we see a third and final movement that God is worthy to be trusted and deserving of our faith and confidence because He is simply our help. And so having laid out for us where we're going to go in this series uh, or this sermon this morning, I want us to dig right in. And because of its large scope, I'm just going to bring your attention to some verses as the the occasion needs it, and we'll go from there. So as you look at chapter 21 in the book of 1 Samuel, David travels, having been rescued by Jonathan and Michelle, his wife, Saul's son and daughter. David has fled Jerusalem, his house and his family, And Jonathan met him and told him, indeed, dad has it out for you. The king is trying to kill his number one commander. So chapter 21 opens with these realities that Saul has made numerous attempts on David's life each time God has delivered David. And even so, Jonathan and Michael are torn apart from David. He's no longer able to be with them. And so David leaves all by himself from that field as he and Jonathan say goodbye to one another. David travels to Nob, that's a city in Jerusalem, uh, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? 
This would indeed be a troubling sign because David was well known in the country and even though he's coming to the the tabernacle and to the high priest of Israel at that time, uh, he's by himself, which could be a really bad sign. David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. The priest answered David, I have no more bread on hand. I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. David says, sure, they have. So the priest gave him, verse 6, the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. We see in this passage as it opens that he travels and he's on the run, but he disguises the fact that he's on the run from Saul with this lie. Now it is a lie. The Scriptures doesn't condone it. They don't try to polish it over. So if there's an argument to be made for the integrity of God's Word is that we don't just see beautiful, clean, holy righteous people in the scriptures. We see people we can identify with. David lied through his teeth. And maybe we should be pleased that he is such a poor liar. Asked about the king's urgent business. Okay, that's what you're on? Okay, that sounds possible. But David, where's the soldiers that accompany me? Oh, David, you left on the king's business alone and you didn't bring rations. Wow, it's been a bad day. Did you wake up? you know, like rushing out the door? You didn't get your coffee that morning, David? And for crying out loud, where are your weapons? As we see in verse 8 and 9. The Bible doesn't condone his lies. It just simply records them. We're responsible to see what's true. But we see that he's in a panic and that that led to him lying. Perhaps we could justify it, or not justify it, but we could explain it as David's trying to protect Ahimelech from any plausible deniability. I don't know why David came. Or maybe he doesn't know who he can trust, and so he's trying to protect himself. Perhaps Ahimelech is a spy of Saul's. Other than Jonathan, he doesn't know who to trust. Think about that for a moment, just what a terrifying place that would be. So David leaves the tabernacle with some bread and a sword. And next, in verses 10 through 15, we see that he flees of all places to the very place you would not want to be caught dead if you were David. And that's the, that's the city of Gath. It's, it's Goliath's hometown. Here we are just four chapters removed from this epic battle between David and Goliath. And David flees to the king of Gath, Achish. And we see, again, his desperation. Why would he go there? Isn't this just insanity? But, in fact, that wasn't unusual in those days. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so if David and Saul have had a falling out, well, then Israel's champion would easily become the Philistines' champion, replacing the one that he struck down. And how much more powerful would the Philistines be as a result of that? I mean, it's a huge feather in Achish's hat. But, unfortunately for David, as we read, verses 10 through 12, Achish's servants have been tuned into Israel's radio station. 
And they've been listening to the top hits in Israel. And the number one song for months has been this song, that Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And they repeat that in the ears of the king. And then David becomes greatly afraid. And what we see in verses 13 through 15, if you go there, this is a really interesting passage of Scripture. David, verse 12, says, He took their words to heart, was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. I mean, David knows he is in desperate situation. And it would appear that the in their hands that we see there in verse 13 seems to indicate David has now been kept in custody. Oh, this is the guy. Let's lock him up until I can think about what to do with him. And David then launched his short but Oscar-worthy career. Feigning insanity, we see that he's released. The king says, guys, this man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Should this fellow come into my house? I want nothing to do with him. He's a lunatic. And so David escapes through feigning insanity. He's released. And if you want to hear more about how David processed what was taking place, read Psalm 34 and Psalm 56. Both of them reference David's thoughts to this time. Next, we're told that uh, in chapter 22, verses 1 through 2, that David fled to a cave. And there... As he was escaping not only Saul, but the Philistines now, some 12 miles east of Gath, his brothers find out where he is. His extended family joins David, and not just them, but there are others that joined him. No doubt David's family thought they were fleeing from Saul's retribution. You belong to David. The best way to get to David is to get you. But then we see that others gather to David. There were men who were in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul. They gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. So David is now the leader of this motley crew, and I think it would have probably been easier to lead the nation than this very diverse group of people. And this is where God has put him. A man who fled all by himself has now been reunited with his family, and maybe he's got some new friends. But what are their motivations? What are their ambitions? Well, next we see in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 22, David flees to Moab. And he asked the king of Moab to give him asylum for his parents. They were elderly. And so, again, even in our day, being a political refugee is not new. Unlike Achish, the king of Moab was willing to help. We don't know the exact reason for his willingness to protect David's elderly parents, but it could be that Ruth, who was Jesse, David's father, his grandmother, she was a Moabite, we're told in Ruth 4, 17-22. And this is just pause. We have to pause for a moment to just put our heads around this. God's plans are higher than our own. God uses and provides for his people through ordinary means. David was given holy bread even though he wasn't a priest and it became his daily bread. 
God did something miraculous and unique for David. God delivered him from the Philistines as well. And then God had strategically, some hundred years early, created a famine in Israel that led an Israelite family to leave Bethlehem and move to Moab. And the father there, Elimelech, died. His two sons then married Moabite women, and then they died ten years later. And the mother is left alone in a foreign land. Her name is Naomi. And she says, I'm going to go back to my people in Bethlehem. God has cursed me. And one daughter-in-law says, her name is Ruth. Naomi, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And she leaves all that she knows to embrace the God of Naomi and the God of Israel. And she moves to Bethlehem. And there meets a man named Obed, and they have, or Boaz, and they have a son named Obed, who is Jesse's father, and Jesse is David's father. Do you see how, how God works in miraculous ways? It's amazing that he made such arrangements so far in advance, isn't it? Almost like he knew what was going to happen. But God doesn't just do that stuff for kings. He does it for all his children. Now, I don't know where your wife is coming from if you're single. I don't know that. But the Lord has ordained that we should be justified, that we should be sanctified, and that we should be glorified. And not only has God ordained that, but everything that happens in our life is moving us toward that point. Romans 8 tells us this, right? That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknow, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He has predestined, He has also called. And those whom He has called, He has also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, then who can be against us? And we see in chapter 22 and verse 5, God sends a prophet named Gad to David and says, David, it's time for you to go back to Judah. Nothing's changed there. Saul still hunts for you, but you need to return to your land. So what can we learn from this first section? As we see God delivering David and protecting him and providing for him through ordinary means, relationships. The the priest gave him bread, but five loaves of bread, it's not going to go very far. It's not going to last very long. Priest gave him Goliath's sword. David has no other weapons, no other armor, no other food. Then God gives him a company of people to lead. And then God gives him a safe place where his parents will be protected and gives him peace of mind in caring for them. What can we learn from all this? Well, I think we can learn a few things. The holy bread was a visible symbol to worshipers that God sustains his people, and that food was for the priest. It was to be a a picture that they saw every time they came to the tabernacle to offer their offerings. Israel, know this, God will provide for his people. Fresh bread every day. But that holy bread has become David's daily bread. David didn't deserve it. He wasn't a priest. He's actually lying to the priest and to God. But the account does show us much more than just David's failure and his inadequacy. It shows us God's gracious provision. He did more than just provide bread for David, though. He also orchestrated the events that brought Ruth 
into Elimelech's family, paving the way for David's own birth. Then God sent a prophet to David to give him instructions. So in contrast to chapter 17 where we see David like just this man, right? A young man standing before a physical giant. And in boldness, he says, I'm going to say that God's going to give us the victory because you are his enemy and ours. This was a unique experience where, David, where God empowered David to defeat Goliath. But this is an entirely different way that God provides for David. He is literally living hand to mouth. You remember Israel in the wilderness, daily manna, they tried to store it up for a couple days and it turned rotten in the dishes. God wants us at times not to just rest on the laurels of last year, but to come to him today and say, I need new mercies for today. I need to see you provide for me today. I need to know that you are with me today. And God promises to do that for us. The Lord has worked through ordinary means at necessary times to meet David's need, and that ought to prepare us for our own journey in following Christ. He has sworn to protect and sustain his people, and I think every parent, whether you are standing up here to have your child dedicated, can find comfort in this quiet observation. Here's the truth. God will sustain you, not because of how good you are, but because he is gracious. This is true for every Christian in any stage of life. When you find yourself facing big problems, look backwards and see the small ways in which God has provided for you in his grace, and then rejoice. Don't get so caught up in the rat race that you are oblivious to the fact that God's given you a loving wife who prays for you every day. Or a loving husband who prays for you. Or who's giving you kids. Or whatever it may be that God has provided. Now back in chapter 21 in verse 7, there was a brief note that you might have read as noticed as you were reading through these chapters this week. It mentioned a gentleman by the name of Doeg the Edomite. He was described as the chief of Saul's herdsmen. And he was the only witness to David's interaction with Ahimelech at the tabernacle there in chapter 21. And now as we come to verse 6 of chapter 22, we learn why that was put in there. And it's a bittersweet reminder. This is our second point. A bittersweet reminder of God's, all of God's words will come to pass. This is why we can trust him, because he alone is trustworthy. We leave the forest of Hereth, and we travel some 20, 30 miles north to Gibeah, It's Saul's hometown, and it's functioning as his capital. He's surrounded by his servants, and the king is lamenting the fact that they and his own son have conspired against him. They betrayed him regarding David. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Doeg sees the opportunity for advancement, and he starts recounting in verses 6 through 9 of chapter 22 just what he saw in Nob. And he adds a little commentary as well. And then Saul, what does he do in verses 10 through 19? He orders all of Ahimelech and his priestly family to come to Gibeah and give an account. And there he accused them of treason and sentenced them to death. Look at verse 10 of chapter 22. Saul 
is just incensed with anger. He accuses them. He's a sum, oh, sorry, verse 11. He summoned Elimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And he said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your own bodyguard and honored in your own house? These things are all true. Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? Apparently Ahimelech was being a good priest, and he was praying for the officers in Saul's army. He was praying for his fellow countrymen. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. Perhaps this was David's design, was it? And the king said this, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is also with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. These men had character their king did not possess. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. 85 priests. And then he went to Nob, the city of the priest, and he put to sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. This is tragedy upon tragedy. Saul ordered this man to do this, and he did. Forty to fifty years earlier, God had judged Eli, an unfaithful priest, the high priest of Israel. And today it came to pass. Seeing an entire family wiped out, and in particular the high priest's family, ought to remind us just how seriously God takes sin. It should conjure up the mind of Achan and the Israelites in Joshua 7. Eli's sin, like Achan's, affected the entire nation. The high priest was to display to the people God's holiness. And yet Eli allowed his sons to profane God's name and the tabernacle. They stole sacrifices meant to God for themselves. They committed sexual immorality with women in the tabernacle. They did all kinds of other wickedness and they would not turn from it. But Doeg did something that no other Israelite in the right mind would do. He laid his hands on the Lord's anointed priest. Whether he sought the king's favor or he simply hated Israel and her God, what's clear is this, and Davis says this in his commentary, when God's enemies oppose him, they only bring God's word to pass. It's a bittersweet reminder that all of God's words will come to pass. The Israelites to whom Samuel was written they lived either during the divided monarchy or during the exile. And they would have read this account and it would have been painful them for them to read it on two levels. And here they are. 
First, it would remind them of their present circumstances, that those circumstances, a divided monarchy or a nation in exile, the reason for this was because of their individual and national sin. And all of God's words come to pass, sometimes even by the hands of sinful men. And so those first readers to whom Samuel was written to, they would have read this and been forced to examine what brought them to where they were that day and how ought they to respond. It would be a sobering reminder, and maybe it is for us, that God's words all come to pass. There would also be a second reason this would be painful for the first readers, and that is that an Edomite committed such carnage four times Doeg's name is attached to the title, the Edomite. There's a long history between Israel and Edom. You see, Esau and Jacob were twins. Esau later became known as Edom. Jacob later became known as Israel. They were brothers. And these nations were brothers in word. In the law, God instructed Israel, you shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. But unfortunately, the Edomites didn't reciprocate. And regularly, there was war between Israel and Edom. In fact, during the Exodus, as Israel is leaving the wilderness, they asked Edom, hey, can we travel on the king's highway through your territory? We will pay for all water. We won't take anything. We'll stay on the road. We'll mind our P's and Q's and just let us pass through. They wouldn't do that. In fact, Edom assembled on the border with a great show of force. It got worse. During Saul's time, we were told in chapter 14 that Saul fought them. We will see in 2 Samuel that David would feat the Edomites until he finally defeated them and made them a vassal state where they paid tribute. During the divided monarchy, the the nation of Israel uh, lost their hold on Edom as they revolted from Judah's rule. And then Edom exacts their revenge. They committed horrible atrocities against Israel and Judah. You can read the entire book of Obadiah. Maybe you haven't heard of that one lately. The entire book is written to describe what they did to their brothers. You can see passages all throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Joel, Ezekiel, even in Psalms. And therefore God vowed to utterly destroy them. So the first readers... They hear this and it reminds them of their sin. And then it just, again, kind of tweaks their heart because this is being done by a brother. So here's two observations for us. We see Saul raising his sword against God's priest. And what he has done is taken another step to isolate himself from any good support. Think about what he's done to this point. He's driven a wedge between himself and his son and himself and his daughter. He's forced his son-in-law, who is the best commander in his army, to flee. And now he's lost the respect of his servants by telling them to kill the Lord's priests. And then he literally cut himself off from hearing from God by killing all the priests. And it doesn't appear to have bothered him at all. There is no mention going forward of Saul ever building more altars, as we saw early in his kingship, or worshiping at the tabernacle, or offering sacrifices, or confessing his sin. 
we see even more how devastating it is to have the Spirit of God taken away from God's King. Which reminds me of Proverbs 18.1 that says this, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Friend, don't be like Saul. Don't turn away from God's truth because you want to do what you want to do. That doesn't make any sense, and it's not good for you or those that you're responsible for in any stretch of the imagination. Cling to the Lord. Don't isolate yourself from Him. Yes, God's Word may be hard to hear at times, but His words are life to all who love and submit to them. Avail yourself not only to God's word, but I would argue even more that you should also avail yourself to God's people. You need to be spending time with Christians. You need to, if you're an unbeliever and you're here this morning, ask the Christians around you about their faith. Why would you trust a God you've never met in person? You don't know that this Bible is true, supposedly. You weren't there when it was written. No doubt it's been corrupted by human writers and translators over the years. Why would you believe all this? How do you stand there in front of me with a clean conscience and a a ready smile with a conviction that this is all true and that he is real? Share your story. How God has worked, how God has moved, how God has directed, how he has provided through ordinary means for you. How he has saved you and cleansed you from your sin. You need God's people, but it's not just an unbeliever who needs to be asking about the faith. Members of South Canyon, if your only interaction with other Christians from this church is on a Sunday morning, you are missing out, brothers and sisters. You need one another. We need one another for counsel, for comfort, for correction. And you don't need an invitation to meet with someone. We we don't have to schedule that. Like, there is a lot of stuff that takes place throughout the week in this church, and I'm thankful for that. We have all kinds of Bible studies for men and women. We have life groups, and we have all kinds of teaching for children and teens and whatnot. But you don't have to be invited to do that. You can just look at someone that you don't know and say, hey, uh, we're here at the same church, and Pastor James told me to do it, so I'm going to check my box this week. It's okay. And let's get coffee. Tell me your story. How did you come here? Tell me about Jesus, what he means to you, what he's done in your life. And talk about co- over coffee about what God is doing. So many helpful conversations come from taking the Bible and sitting down with a brother or sister and reading it and talking about it. Or a good Christian book. Don't isolate yourself from God's word or God's people. But there is hope. Here's the second observation. There is hope. Because I said it looked like Saul had killed through Doeg all of the priests. Verse 20 of chapter 22 says, One of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Hittub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord, and David said to him, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me and do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. I mean, just think about this guy's heart. David is a fugitive and he is comforting someone who has lost his family. 
And you see the shepherd's heart. David says, stay with me and it will be for your safekeeping. I will guard you. It's just fascinating to me and hopeful that he found safety with David. And David writes about this whole experience in Psalm 52. So here's a third psalm that arises from this situation in time in David's life. Don't miss the significance of this. Although the priests of Yahweh may be destroyed, they are not completely destroyed. The same thing happened when the Pharaoh of Egypt believed he could kill all of the Israelite's sons and Moses was delivered. The same was true when Elijah said, God, it's just you and me and I'm tired. There's no one left that loves you and worships you in Israel. And God says, no, there's 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And it's just like this. When in the New Testament, another king sets his mind on killing all the sons of Bethlehem, yet Jesus is delivered. See, no matter how many Christians are killed, it is impossible to reverse God's redemption once he has ordained it. We may lose our lives someday for the sake of the gospel, but the kingdom will endure. It will never perish. Daniel or David penned these words in connection to the events of 1 Samuel 23. He says this in Psalm 54. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. And that perfectly summarizes our third and final point. God is our help. That is why he alone is worthy of your trust. We look at chapter 23. And we see in verses 1 through 13 that God's word is life. Saul killed all the priests except one. He's done great evil to the nation. But David did what God's anointed king ought to do. He rescued the people in Keilah. Verses 1 through 5, we were told that the Philistines are fighting against Keilah. They're robbing the threshing floors. The people are oppressed. And David goes and he asks God, what should I do about this? God says, go up and I'll deliver you. Well, we're only 400 guys up. Well, he might have said about 400, Lord. I mean, the Philistines, more armaments, larger uh, force. The, the odds are not in our favor. <clears throat> and God says, no, I want you to go. So David goes. And he does this great, God gives him a great victory. Verse 5, he struck him down with a great blow, so David saved, saved the inhabitants of Keilah. And then verse 6 gives us this little caveat, kind of like back in 21 and verse 7 when we're told something about Doeg. We're told in verse 6 when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David to Keilah, he'd come down with an ephod in his hand. This is an instrument that was used to divine God's will and mind on a matter. The priests were given this by God to help them know simple questions, yes or no. And he brought it with him. So David has access to even more uh, of God's mind in this time in his life. Now Saul thought in verses 6 through 13, he had David trapped in the city and he summoned his army to lay siege. And we're told that whether it was the result of spinelessness or simply now the citizens of Keilah are afraid that Saul's going to turn Keilah into Nob. He's going to kill everyone there. We see that their gratitude was short-lived. David inquires of the Lord, will the men turn me over to Saul when he comes? Yes, they will. 
And so David knows that they are going to surrender him to Saul, and he flees the city. But I want you to notice something. Look at verse 4, 6, and 10, and 11. Twice God gave David answers to his questions through the priest and the ephod. These means of grace. David demonstrated his reliance on God's word. And at every turn we see David is saying, I'm going to go to God with my questions. I'm going to go to God with my concerns. I'm going to ask him and wait upon him for an answer. And God answered. He gave David direction and wisdom. This is instructive for each and every one of us. We have the word of God. And we ought to be well-versed in seeking him through it and following him and submitting ourselves to him. David didn't say, okay, well, that's what you want me to do. I'm going to go in a different direction. He wasn't like Jonah. God's word was life to David. It told him to go fight and deliver God's people. And then it says, it's time to leave, David, because you will be killed if you stay here. God's word was life. But look at verse 14 through 18. Not only is God's word life, But look at godly friendships are life. David was hiding in the wilderness, verses 14 and 15, and Jonathan came to him and we're told that he came with the purpose to strengthen David's hand in the Lord. I I think this is just worthy of saying. It's ironic, isn't it? That David can't be found by Saul, but Jonathan shows up at his doorstep. (laughs) No problems finding David. And in the short summary of Jonathan's visit, we find two important truths about godly friendships. When your friend is suffering, your presence is a great help. Just being there when someone loses a loved one, being there when someone is sick and can't get out of bed, being there when someone is recovering from surgery or has just lost their job, or is struggling with a relationship that's going badly, being with a friend is a great boon and a real help to them. And I thank God for His grace in giving me godly friends. And I think we all, I hope we all could say the same. You need godly friendships. So like I said before, take time to develop those with people here at South Canyon. Don't be an unknown in this company of people that are here. But like a good meal, good friends' presence only carries us so long, right? You can sit down this afternoon and have a great lunch, but by the evening or maybe by next tomorrow morning, we're going to be hungry again. And so Jonathan does something both by his example and his word that are instructive for us in relationship to friendships. He was there with David, And then we are told he spoke words to David. You see that? Look at verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 17. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish. And Jonathan went home. Jonathan understood that his presence was only going to be a temporary help, which is why he did something we need to do. He reminded David of God's promises, promises that will provide an enduring help, 
Promises that will outlast the aroma of Jonathan's presence. The essence of verse 17 is that Jonathan is reaffirming God's promise to David. You will be king. God has made promises to you, David, that God will fulfill. And so I would encourage you, as these two men made a covenant before the Lord, and we see the significance of this visit, when we are told in verse 18 that David remained at Horish and Jonathan went home, it would be the last time these two men would see each other. Godly friendships are essential for us to serve Christ and to survive the challenges of this life. Jonathan demonstrated yet again the uncommon faithfulness that defined his relationship with David. This is the kind, we need Jonathans, every one of us, and praise God that Jesus is such a friend who sticks closer than a brother. God's proven himself trustworthy, friend. He's, He's done it by the ordinary means of grace by which he provides and cares for his people. He's done it by sustaining David and fulfilling his word, even hard words, that he always keeps his promises. And then he's done it thirdly by showing that he is a help. He has saved David with his word. He's used David's friendship with Jonathan as a great source of comfort. God has proven himself to be trustworthy, not only to David, but to all he covenants with. On the other hand, what's the reality about us? God's faithful. He speaks only truth, and he keeps all of his promises. Where do we stand in relationship to this? We are not like God in that sense. We break covenant. We don't always tell the truth. Sometimes we just absolutely lie. It shows that we prove ourselves to be untrustworthy and unworthy to be friends with God. And this is the great reason that we need the gospel. It is both for salvation and for ongoing comfort. Even when we break covenant with God, He will not break covenant with us. I mean, this this is the promises that he's made to us in Christ. This is the blessed assurance that only Christians can know. It's also why we urge people everywhere to repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, to know God in such a way that he will never leave you nor forsake you. As the chapter closes, we see that not only does God use his word to give life and friendships to give life, But God even uses sinners to preserve life. Because Saul once again is hunting David. And this time, instead of someone saying, we'll turn him over to you, they're actually actively uh, conspiring against David. They go to Saul. The Ziphites travel to him. They tell Saul where David is. They offer to hand him over, nicely tied up in a bow. And so Saul and his men left Gibeah, and they are going to chase David. Psalm 54 records David's complaint against the Ziphites. But notice, God, David and, uh, David and Saul are separated by just a mountain. They're, one is on one side running, and the other is on the other side pursuing. This is how close it is. And the tension of the narrative is designed to just evoke within us a sense of concern. Will he escape? What is going to happen? And then word comes to Saul that the Philistine raiders have invaded, and it pulls Saul off the hunt. David left the wilderness of Maon and he lived in the stronghold of Engedi. And it is, again, a reminder that God used sinners to deliver David. At just such a time, the Philistines invaded. And for the first time, Saul abandons his chase to go do his job. 
I'm amazed at how much David wrote about this time in his life. You look at 1 Samuel chapter 21, 22, and 23, and then you read Psalm 34, Psalm 52, Psalm 54, Psalm 56, and you put them together, you have this picture that David had a relationship with God that wasn't just important to him, it was the ballast that kept him upright in this tumultuous time of his life. God was his rock and his refuge. God was his life. And although God hasn't resolved David's biggest problem to date, which is Saul, David is learning that the Lord is faithful to provide all that he needs. Isaac Watts wrote this hymn, O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. Under the shadow of thy throne, thy saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is thine arm alone, and our defense is sure. This morning you woke up in familiar surroundings. It was your bed. You put on clothes you've probably worn before or drove a car you've had for some time. You came into a church no doubt you're familiar with. And in spite of all the familiar surroundings and the routines, the fact of the matter is this, that today is a brand new day. And we are all experiencing it for the very first time. There's a freshness here. It's an opportunity for us to grow, to do good to others, to serve and seek God's kingdom first. And I want to just ask you, will you step forward into this new day with confidence that all your ways are known to God and that you can trust his faithfulness? Oh, the confidence and the strength that is available to those who trust in the one who provides through ordinary means, whose word is true, and who alone is our help. He knows all our ways and has planned our steps. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for your great grace to us. We thank you for the mundane ways in which you sustain us. Help us not to scorn them, help us to not overlook them, but to lean into them as confidence builders, as evidence of your grace to us. And Lord, let us never doubt that your word is true, that you will keep all your promises. Help us to order our lives around your word and help us to invest our lives in your people, to build friendships that will endure, friendships that will be a very present help in a time of trouble. Most of all, Lord, help us to see that you alone are our help and that we can trust you in the big and in the small. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.